Please open up your Bibles to Psalm 19 this morning. If you've been with us any this summer, you know that we've been seeking to find God in the middle, in the middle of every situation and circumstance that we might find ourselves in. And we've been using Psalms, some selected Psalms that we've looked at as our guide. And so this morning, I'm going to begin to wrap this series up. And I say begin to because it's going to be a two-part sermon. I knew that I wanted to try to get to Psalm 19 in this series. And in a rare moment of foresight, I said, you know what, there's no way that I could begin to halfway cover Psalm 19 uh, in a single sermon. It will actually be a struggle to do it in two, but we're going to try nonetheless. And so this morning is part one of finding God both in the middle of His world and also His Word. We're looking at how God has revealed Himself to us. So I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy." Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May the Lord add his richest blessing to the teaching and the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, that last verse is certainly my prayer as a preacher of the gospel. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. Oh Lord, as, as believers, as followers of Christ, that last verse is also our prayer. Lord, that the gospel would have had such an impact on us that not just our actions are changed, but indeed the very words that come forth from our mouths, and indeed even the most hidden of secret thoughts and feelings in our hearts, Lord, that even those too would be pleasing in your sight. 
Oh Lord, you've got a lot of work to do on us if that will be true. And so come now even in these moments and continue your work. Your work of transformation through the glorious grace of the gospel. Be at work even now we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. First thing I'm going to do this morning, in hopes of giving some cohesiveness to the two parts, is to give you the lay of the land. Uh, what's going on in this psalm, a, a, a broad and brief outline, if you will. First thing we see, verses 1 through 6, have to do with creation have to do with finding God in the middle of His world, in, in the middle of His works. What is the message we get simply from observing creation around us? And theologians have given this uh, a name, if you will, calling it general revelation. This message that we can pick up on from observing creation around us they call general revelation. From there, we'll move on to the next set of verses. Verses 7 through 10 or 11, depending on how you split it up. These verses cover, in essence, Scripture. Finding God in the middle of His Word. And this is a bit different. Because see, with creation, with general revelation, there's a message that we can infer. Right? There's a message that we can pick up on by taking it all in. We can reach some conclusions by what we observe. But with God's Word, when He speaks, rather than creation speaking, the message is much more specific. It's much more clear. And so theologians refer to this as special revelation. Let me just pause there for a second. That God would reveal Himself to us at all is a sheer act of amazing grace. He didn't have to reveal Himself at all, much less so clearly and, and so well-preserved down through the centuries that we might have it at our ready disposal that He condescended to our level and took great pains to make sure that He could communicate to us, reveal himself, reveal himself in a way that we can understand. That's just an unmerited, undeserved grace. The third section of this psalm, verses 11 through 14, have to do with the effect of all of that revelation on us and our response to that revelation. This morning, the focus will primarily be on that first section on general revelation, finding God in the middle of His world, in the midst of His creation, general revelation. And so with that, there's three things to look at as it, as it pertains to general revelation, as it pertains to this message that can be derived from creation around us. So when it comes to general revelation, three things. What is it? What does it tell us, and what can it not tell us? All right, so first, what general revelation is, the nature of it. Look at those first two verses in 
Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Creation is trying to tell us something. It's got a message for us. Unfortunately, this message is easy to miss here. It's easy for this message to go unheard for a variety of reasons. There are lots of wrong responses to observing the heavens and the skies and creation all around us. First common erroneous response is to look around and then to deify what we see. Say, that sun is amazing. It's so bright and so big and so hot. It must be a God. Let's worship it. Or to think that there is a God associated with each element of creation, to look at the sea in all of its raging, foaming fury, to say there must be a God that controls it. We better keep him or her, as the case may be, on our good side. Or maybe we're on track with the fact that there's a message somewhere in creation, but we go about it all wrong. And we turn to something like astrology and we say, oh, well, the message, the guidance must be in how the planets move and how the stars converge. Some of us, especially us moderns, tend to say, there's no message there. There's nothing to hear here. It's just all a product of chance. And so it's just a flat rejection of the message that is there. Y'all, part of the reason why it's so easy to get wrong what this message is, is that while there is a message there in general revelation, it's a message without words. Verse 3 begins to get to that. There is no speech, nor are there words. And see, verse 3 is it's a little interesting. The way that it's worded leaves you with a couple of possibilities of what's, what's the psalmist trying to communicate here? And so scholars are divided on two possibilities, but actually both of those possibilities are pretty helpful because one is just the most literal, obvious, there aren't words in general revelation. There, there are no words, right? You don't go outside at night and hear the stars actually say anything. The sun, hot and bright though it is, is silent. There are no words. The other way of interpreting this is, is what uh, Calvin does. And he really links it with verse 4 that comes after. So says to understand verse 3, you've got to look at verse 4 as well, which says, Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So taken with verse 4... Verse 3 contend to mean, and I, I kind of see this, that there's not a language or dialect. There's not speech or words where the message of creation isn't being proclaimed. There's nowhere where this message doesn't reach. It transcends speech and words. It communicates regardless of the language that's spoken or of the location 
of the place. This message that the heavens, that, that God's creation is communicating, it's not bound by geography. It's not bound by dialect. Speak in English? Great, no problem. Speak in Swahili? Great, no problem. Living in 29118? Got you covered. On the tiniest, most remote island in the middle of the Pacific? Got you covered too. See, the message can still be heard. That's why Paul goes on to say what he says in Romans 1 about general revelation. He's got some heavy words there, some important words. I picked out just three verses in Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Paul and our psalmist, David, agree. There is a message, and it is loud, and it is clear. You get that from the verbs that David uses in in those first two verses. Declare, proclaims, pours out speech. More literally, like spewing or, or, or gushing forth. Reveals, right? These are not weak verbs David's not saying, you know what, creation kind of, sort of hints at. It's like a faint whisper if you listen real close. That's not what David's saying at all. Calvin captured this pretty well in his commentary on the Psalms. The glory of God is not written in small, obscure letters but richly engraved in large and bright characters which all men may read and read with the greatest ease. So the question is, what is this message? What is it that the heavens are declaring? What is it telling us? Well, first and foremost, that there is a Creator. to look around at all that we see and to surmise that that's just the product of chance. You know, that's just the fact that these atoms, they just kept bumping into each other and eventually all this happened. Y'all, that's madness. That is folly to discard the blatantly obvious explanation and seek to explain it away, to seek to deny that there must be some intelligent, powerful, creative force behind all this. Wouldn't you imagine? You know, that requires such mental and logical backflips and contortions. It is just a ridiculous rebellion against the Creator. Chance. 
random. I heard a John Piper preach a sermon, and I don't remember what it was on, but he used an illustration that has stuck with me to this day of this spider that he read about that lives underwater. Now, spiders aren't fish. They can't get oxygen out of the water. In order to live underwater, this spider would, at the surface of the water, do a somersault and catch a tiny bubble of air under its body and then travel back down to some shelf, canopy, whatever that he could get up underneath and somersault again and release the tiny bubble of air. Then he'd go back up to the top, do another flip, bring that tiny bubble until he had created for himself a pocket of air under the water in which to live. When you observe that in creation, what is the most logical conclusion that you can reach? Is it that a whole bunch of spiders tried to live underwater, but only this one particular type was successful because he just so happened to have this skill, or better yet, he developed this skill as a survival strategy? No, that requires mental and logical gymnastics. The most logical and blatantly obvious reason that the spider catches the little bubble and takes it underwater is that he was made to do it. He was designed that way. He was willed to do it by the one that made him. How amazingly creative the Creator is to come up with such a thing. His creativeness, closely related to His beauty. Right? Beauty in creation is everywhere. We've got some bird feeders set up at the house, and we love to watch the birds show up. Right? Hummingbirds have been pretty active lately. Every once in a while, not nearly as often as, as I would like, a painted bunting will show up. And it's just breathtaking, right? The male in all of his blue and red and green color shows up at the feeder, and it is just stunning. The heavens and the spiders and the birds declare the glory of God. How, how glorious, how great, how, how powerful He must be. B. In the end of verse 4 through verse 6, the psalmist speaks of the sun. How the sky serves as its tent. (laughs) He talks about the course of the sun. From its rising to the end of its course. Anybody know what time sunset is today? 7.56. Anybody happen to know what time sunset will be on Christmas Day in the year 2025? It'll be at 5.22 p.m. Now, how do we know that? Is it because we got really, really good at calendar making? 
I assure you it has very little to do with that. It has everything to do with the one who made the sun with such precision and run its course with such regularity and exactness that it always does exactly what it's supposed to do when it's supposed to do it. Verse 6 mentions the heat of the sun. All right, you've been outside on a, on a clear, cloudless day and it's hot and you can begin to feel your skin burn. You, you know it's happening. You realize, I've got to get in some shade or get some sunscreen or something. I can feel my skin burning. Now, how in the world can something 93 million miles away cause us to feel that much heat on our skin? Consider just the sheer magnitude of the sun, how much power that is to reach us in that way from 93 million miles away. How hot must the sun be and how powerful must the one be who created it? The sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit at its core. But there are parts of the sun that are a lot cooler. They're only 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Right? How, how great is the sun? How, how much power is that? The greatness of the creation must, it needs, must point to the greatness of the one who created it. Now, the sun is not just heat, it is also light. It lights up the day, and by doing so, it shows us all the rest of creation. When a little spider comes up to the surface to do his flip, we can see it because the sun's lighting it up for us, right? But it's not just the day that's in on this game. Verse 2 says, day by day and night to night. Think about what we would miss. What, what part of the message of God's glory we would miss and not have declared to us if we didn't have the night sky. If we didn't have the sun set and go down and leave us with some darkness so that we might go out on a clear night and look up and behold that which we cannot count. My one estimate, roughly... 100 billion stars in our galaxy. By another estimate, thanks to the Hubble telescope, perhaps there are 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. So how many stars is that? Well, do the math. School just started back recently, boys and girls. Some long multiplication. How about it? 100 billion times 100 billion. What in the world is that? Well, it's a one followed by 21 zeros. And I had to look it up. That's a sextillion. That many stars. The heavens Declare the glory of God. Now, let's take this one step further. And in doing so, I'm going to reveal my own ignorance. That's okay. Pretty used to that by now. I'm not a science person, and I'm, I'm going to say this, and some of you are going to say, well, duh. But I didn't pick up on this from school. 
Now, I do, I do remember from school being taught that the sun in our solar system, it is a star. Right? I, I remember that. But somehow it got lost along the way to think about the fact that all those sextillion stars out there also have the potential to be the suns of their own solar systems with their own planets rotating around each of those stars. Mind completely blown. How, how immense. How much more small I now feel than I already felt looking out at the sky. I mean, it's easy to kind of have a, a self-centeredness about our solar system and our sun, and we look out at night, look at all those stars out there, and, and that each one of them has the potential to have its own planets orbiting around it. The message speaks loudly and clearly. There is a creator, and he's glorious, and he's powerful, and he's creative, and he's precise, and he's intricate. But what the message of creation cannot tell us, where we run up against its limits, was hinted at really remarkably by one of the commentators I read, Derek Kidner. It's a great commentator. He said, if you look at this psalm, look at those first six verses, and God is mentioned once. And he's mentioned with the most generic Hebrew word that there is for God, just simply El. That's kind of like general revelation. It can tell us there is a God. It can tell us there is a creator. But it's in the second half of that psalm, verses 7 through 14, that not just once, but seven times is mentioned God, and not with the common generic El, but with Yahweh. Which in our English translations is always translated capital L-O-R-D. It's the personal name used for God. The, the relational, the, the name that expressed God's covenantal relationship with His people. The name that the Israelites wouldn't even say out loud. When they would be reading the Scriptures and come across it, they wouldn't even say it or pronounce it out loud. Instead, they would say Adonai in its place, which means Lord, which is why our translations say capital L-O-R-D, because it's what would have been read aloud. See, creation can tell us that there is a Creator, that there is a God, but it's going to take the Word of God. It's going to take special revelation to tell us that this God wants to live in covenant relationship with you. And general revelation, looking out at the stars, seeing their beauty, seeing the glory and the power of the sun, cannot lead you into that relationship. It takes the Word of God to do that. Um, Paul quotes verse 4 out of Psalm 19, just verbatim, uh, in Romans 10. Uh, verse 18, all right? So that's interesting. But it's helpful if you think, oh, well, what, what did he say right before he quoted this verse out of our psalm? He had this to say in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
You can get a lot of things from looking out at, at the stars and the heavens and the sun and, and even the little spider who does his little flip. But you cannot come into a saving covenant relationship with the Father through the Son except through the Word. It takes the explicit, full revealing and explaining of the wonderful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to explain our need of forgiveness, to explain the provision that's been made by our Savior. The, the hymn writer Isaac Watts. All right, so you're familiar with him from uh, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And when I survey the wondrous cross. Well, he also penned these words, most assuredly thinking about Psalm 19. The heavens declare thy glory, Lord. In every star thy wisdom shines. But when our eyes behold thy word, we read thy name in fairer lines. We need these fairer lines of God's word to know that the Son of God, who was with the Father at creation too, right? he was involved in all of this. He was there. We need the Word. We need the Word of God to know that God the Son also took on flesh to come and live among the creation, to become the Redeemer that verse 14 in our psalm mentions there at the end. The message of creation is loud and clear and it is important, but by itself it is also incomplete. We need the fuller revelation of God in His Word to give us the rest of the story. And that's where we'll turn in part two to look in detail at this Word, this more valuable than fine gold, sweeter than the drippings from the honeycomb. We'll turn there next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your amazing grace that you decided and desired to reveal yourself to us and you pulled out all the stops in doing it. Your creation leaves us speechless It declares your glory loudly and clearly. It bears witness in the very bottom of our being that you exist, that you created, that you made. And yet, Father, we needed more and you provided more. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the final and complete word, the Lord Jesus. My prayer this morning, Father, is that you would give us all ears to hear, that you give us eyes to see, and that by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, you'd give us hearts to believe, hearts to embrace, hearts to cling to the Savior, and the promise of the work that He's done on our behalf. Grant, O oh Father, that this gracious work of Your Spirit would be going on even now in our midst. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.